BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, David Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Political strategist Steve Schmidt has worked with some of the biggest names in the Republican Party but perhaps most famously, the late Senator John McCain during his 2008 campaign for the presidency. Schmidt has made headlines recently over new revelations about his professional and personal relationship with the McCain family and the late senator. And it's not just the normal glowing stuff that you might hear about McCain's heroism or moral compass, which Steve agrees he absolutely has, but also legitimate criticism of decisions he made and the people he enabled. We've talked on the show before about the interesting crossroads the Republican Party is now at. Look, historically, the Republicans have been the party of national security. Yet now it's home to many sympathizers of Putin. Uh, you know, this is something that confounds me. But how do we get there? And did it all start with a certain vice presidential nominee seeing, well, Russia from her house? Schmidt, to hear him tell it has nothing to sell or promote by rehashing a campaign that took place a decade and a half ago. He's merely setting the record straight and drawing a through line from our nation's infancy to Sarah Palin to the present. Steve, I am, uh, there's just a lot to unpack, so I'm thrilled to have you here to, uh, to discuss a myriad of things. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's start with, you know, this weekend there was a, the horrible, just, uh, massacre, terrorist attack, uh, you know, white supremacy in Buffalo. And, you know, it just brings so many questions. And one of them is this idea of how you cover something like that without sort of making it feel like this is the first case of racism 
and you know uh, that has that has existed in, in sort of modern day and certainly a history of this country. And that brings me back to discussion sort of you and I started having, which is this idea that you brought up about you know Trump and the things that have come to Trump in your mind um, and from your you know vantage point. A lot of the things that we've seen in your opinion, started before that. And most specifically, you talk a lot about John McCain and your time with John McCain. You know, the first question I have for you, Steve, is that when I think about the Republican Party, I think about Reagan and calling Russia and the Soviets godless communists. And we've seen over the last, you know, several years, certainly to today with Ukraine, this complete shift of almost embracing the Russians. Now, you spent a lot of time with John McCain. John McCain was he one of the last Republicans that really viewed Russia in the prism as a true adversary? I um, think that the overwhelming majority of Americans uh, and, the, and the overwhelming majority of Republicans, voters at least, uh, recognize that Russia is a geopolitical adversary and a great threat to the stability of the world and world peace, and that the fetishizing of Putin and Russia that takes place with Tucker Carlson, with Laura Ingram, with CPAC, uh, who is doing their convention in Budapest, uh, another person they all fetishize is Viktor Orban, anti-Semitic, authoritarian-ish has taken control substantially of curriculum at universities, has uh, encumbered the free press in a way that all of these people, all of these people admire. That um, is not anywhere close to being a majority of, of anything, um, but, but really speaks to a reawakening of a political tradition in the country that's always been there. Um, has manifested itself over time in a lot of different ways. Um, but one of them was certainly the Bund. And the Bund, the German-American Bund, was a fascist organization that filled Madison Square Garden to the rafters in 1938 with a giant uh, banner of uh, George Washington flanked by swastikas with the uh, leader of the Boone, Fritz Kuhn, uh, giving a giving a speech, and and Charles Lindbergh, uh, a leading figure in this. They called themselves American First, uh, America First. Lindbergh was talking about we should be fighting with the Nazis. Right, three weeks after after Pearl Har Harbor was was invaded against against the Japanese, and so this this has always been there. It's been reawakened. And, and I just want to talk about time in the sweep of history um, and just to set something as a waypoint before we go deeper in the conversation, which is, which is this remarkable fact. Um, the 10th president of the United States, John Tyler, uh, who went on to betray the country and served in the Confederate House of Representatives, uh, he was born in 1791. He has a living grandson. Right, think about that. Right, he has a living grandson. That guy's in his nineties, but his grandfather was born in 1790. The first usage of the word Aryan um, that 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 is used in the context 
of how this Nazi killer in Buffalo used it um, came out of a series of essays written by a French aristocrat named Arthur de Gobineau in 1855 that he called The Inequality of the Races. And, and the group that he put at the top of the food chain were the Aryans, a name that heretofore had not been used. And, and that philosophy of his is expressed in this single essay becomes the basis for scientific race theory. Scientific race theory is the predicate to understanding replacement theory. It's foundational to Hitlerism as it twists. And all of this is adopted in this uh, metatastic way by an obscure far-right party in Germany in the 20s called the National Socialist Workers' Party. And so by the time you get to 1945, 90 years after this is invented, 90 years after it's been mainstreamed as the dominant thought across all of European society, Margaret Sanger, Teddy Roosevelt, the eugenics movement, all of it, it's killed 100 million people. And so if the 16 million American men and women who wore the uniform of the United States in the Second World War were still with us largely. If the leaders of that effort, they would recognize what plays out on Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram every single night because it's what they fought, right? And so when we see Elise Stefanik, when we see these people talking about replacement theory, this was all core to Hitlerism. It was the idea is that there is a group of people that are more than and above, and democracy is poisonous because democracy allows the people who are less than, the brown, the black, the Jews, those people, an equal say, an equal vote. And so when we look at this event that played in Buffalo, and I'm sorry for the long answer, but there is direct causality between the rhetoric and the killing because the rhetoric has told the sick and evil person that there is a war for the existential survival of his race and his culture and that he's being replaced. And so now he's taken a lot of black people out who won't replace him. You know, <laughs> a lot to unpack there, first of all. But second, Stephen, and sort of I'm going to ham fist this. You know, I often feel that what is old is now new again, but perhaps when it comes to, as you, you know, correctly pointed out, the history of the word Aryan, for example, it's not what is old is new again. It's that it never was old because it's always been there and it's staying, you know, put. But there's clearly some trajectory. And look, I, I agree with you. I think that when we trace things back, we look at this, there's always been this thing here. But clearly there's I can also acknowledge that there's been a shift that was ushered in under Trump, you know, and I'm reminded again of this moment. And I don't know, you know, we both in the media, you've been around uh, and involved a lot longer than I have. So perhaps you have a different take on this. But I remember very vividly this moment with John McCain and the presidential you know, campaign, a very sort of unscripted moment where this older woman He's doing a rally and she comes up and she says she doesn't like Obama because he's Muslim and starts saying all these things. And he corrects her. And he says, no, ma'am, no, you know, she's not Muslim. He's not Muslim, which, by the way, even if he was, it shouldn't be a big deal. And he says he says, you know, Obama's a good man. 
And when I think about today, about how many people are still angry, like viscerally angry about Obama, yeah. a black man being our, our, our president, was that, again, for all the faults that John McCain has, and I know you've been very vocal about them, was that a, a, a genuine oh, moment? Was there this of idea course. that McCain? Uh, let, me, let, me tell you, let me tell you this story. Um, so a couple of things had happened um, around that period of time. One of them was that a hero of John McCain's, John Lewis, had condemned the campaign. He had looked into these crowds and saw something. Um, and it said it reminded him of the Deep South. And at the time, uh, McCain was broken by this. Um, he was shattered by it um, and deeply, deeply upset by it. And it, it was the moment that like kind of killed him, um, I, I think, at, at, a, at a core level as a candidate. Um, you know, there, there's, he knew he was losing. He knew the politics of going out and saying the fundamentals of the economy were strong when it was blowing up, you know, after, after Lehman Brothers and all of this. But this, this, that broke his back. And, um, and I have a different perspective on all of this now. Um, but we were all in that moment, like, my God, this is, this is awful. She's out of control. And as, you got closer to the finish line, um, the anger grew because there was an inevitability um, that Barack Obama was going to be elected president. And you started to hear the N-word in the crowd uh, when McCain said his name. And it was absolutely jarring to hear it um, in you know, October of 2008. And I had never heard the word shouted out loud um, at any type of political rally ever that I had ever been to as an, as an, as an adult. And when you, when you heard it for the first time, when I heard it for the first time standing at the people, I said, did I, did I, did I just hear that? And, um, and wow. so one of the things that you have to do, right, in a, in a political campaign, right, you have to be able to say uh, your opponent's name out loud. Um, you, you, the campaign makes no sense if you, if you can't, right? And, um, you know, and I, I think Barack Obama would be the first person to tell people that he wants to live in a country where people can vote against Barack Obama, right? <laughs> um, and, and, right, of course. Um, and so we went to we went to McCain right around this time and we had had this conversation and the conversation was basically like, look, John, you're, you're not going to win this election. We have we have no chance. Um, Barack Obama is going to be the president. Um, if you say his name out loud, um, what will happen is people are going to scream the N word more, which is what we're hearing. And the press is hearing it and they're, and they're picking it up on it. And you're the guy and on the stage. And um, I think that what the responsible thing that we all got to do here and, you know, Mark Salter was involved in this conversation and, you know, McCain understood this completely is that we can't say the, senator's name out loud right can't say obama's name out loud 
you know, we got to start preparing for a uh, dignified, um, you know, peaceful transition of power. And, um, you know, the transition um, to, you know, to him being president elect and the important role that we play in the legitimacy of the election. And I and this was all front of mind, um, very much so, as we knew we were, you know, coming down that path. And I and I had had the experience, you know, I was one of the top guys on the on the Bush 04 campaign and women. I, you know, I was with Nicole Wallace all night as she was on the phone, you know, with the Kerry campaign and Mike McCurry um, and back to the White House as we we're working out the, the concession. Um, you know, this is this is serious stuff. And um, and so we said to McCain, um, you just you can't you can't do it. Um, if you say his name out loud, we get what we get. And, and McCain understood the consequence of that. And not too long after you had the woman who did that. And that was a that was a very authentic. That was a very authentic moment. Now, listen, John, John McCain is that lived a big life. He was a complicated guy. He was a flawed guy. He was a magnificent guy. And, and he was a full on American hero of the first 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 and highest caliber. And, um, you know, the real John McCain was enough. Right. And 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 John McCain understood that, you know, um, he'd have been the first to be appalled at being deified. And and so in that moment, you know, he understood what his obligation and his duty was. And, you know, and I was the guy who placed the phone call to to, you know, Senator Obama at that moment that he became president elect Obama. And the reality is. Is the first person in the country who mattered uh, that addressed Senator Obama on that historic night as Mr. President-elect uh, wasn't anyone on his team or anyone on his staff or anyone in the media. It was John McCain. And John McCain went out and delivered one of the most graceful and beautiful concession speeches that speaks to the magnificence of this country and the tradition. Uh, that George Washington set in motion. That's one of the greatest American inventions, if not the greatest American invention uh, that's been exported all around the world. And it's the idea that the people are in charge. They decide. Politicians work for the people. And when we tell them to get out, they go. And and so so in that moment, we played a small role in that. And he was very conscious uh, of what his obligation was in a moment where you know, things were starting to get out of control and in part because of the irresponsibility of his running mate. You know, listening to you talk, I mean, it's it is it's remarkable because obviously when I think of John McCain, uh, you're right. Flawed. Yes. But also really, as you said, a, a true American hero of the first order. This is a man who I think um, to a far, far lesser extent. It's funny, Steve, and I talk about my parents being immigrants and and they really um, both like believed in this ideal of what America is, because if you're going to give up your life in another country to start a new one, you kind of have to believe in it. And I think McCain really represents a belief in those ideals. And from what you're telling me, it sounds like, you know, this graceful dignity because he understood this idea of service and that there's something that is bigger than self. That wasn't the same with Sarah Palin, clearly, you know, I have to, and it's this juxtaposition of this really remarkable John McCain, this remarkable man who, you know, um, didn't want to be associated with 
the nastiness that was coming after Obama and clearly wanted to make, you know, make clear where he stood. But then he also chose Sarah Palin. How does how do we how do you reconcile? How does one reconcile those two things? I mean, look, people are allowed to be flawed, but clearly I would think that probably later in his <laughs> he he acknowledged that Sarah Palin was probably not the right choice to go with for a lot of reasons, not to mention it, you know, it created part of this whole movement. Well, I mean, I, I told this story on a on another podcast recently, but I was with McCain as her car rolled into the compound and and he goes, you know, come on, boys, let's go, let's go talk to her. And what I said to him, and I, I don't, I don't know whether I came up with this on a out of a West Wing episode or whatever, but I, but I had absolute conviction about it, which was it was completely inappropriate for me to be in that room and to have a meeting and be mediating, arbitrating, opining um, about. Uh, who the next vice president should be. I told him it was a presidential level decision. Only he could make it. He had to assess if she was prepared to uh, take the 35 word oath. Um, I had worked in a White House uh, that was buttoned up. Uh, The Obama White House was buttoned up. You know, it was very, very clear in the White House, you know, that I worked in president, vice president, you know, who was in the advice giving business and who was in the decision making business. And uh, John McCain was the decision maker. And I, and I have no idea what they talked about um, in, that, in that meeting. When I had my first conversation with her on a substantive discussion about anything that had to pertain, let's say, broadly speaking, to how the world functions, that was on the bus getting ready to leave St. Paul. And after about three minutes, I realized, yeah, she doesn't have a clue. We fought the Germans in the Second World War. And thinks the president calls the calls the Queen of England. Holy shit. And it and it was absolutely the most pissed off I've ever I've ever been in a in a in a in my life. I I, I was enraged over it. Uh I, I I mean I couldn't I couldn't believe it. And um and and I had my my issue with her in the convention that I was most worried about over these days is, you know, you had this media scrutiny of her that, you know, it piled on and there were all of these facts, right, that were just missing from the vet. And you would say to her, is, was your, I need to get, yet, I'm not, I'm not trying to understand why, I'm not trying to understand any other detail other than the facts. Was your husband a member of a secessionist Alaska Independence Party or not? Right. I I don't. Maybe he liked the barbecue. I don't know. Right. But right. I have the membership card and I'm showing it to you and you keep lying about it. Right. Like at that time. Right. This was unprecedented. Right. This was this was new. I had never met anybody who just couldn't stop lying. Right. Who went like on big things, small things, medium sized things like you. You could not you could not get a straight answer out of this person. Right. That was that was my concern coming out of the convention. How did John McCain not see that? I mean, clearly he must have. Was it just the, the ship was out of, you know, out, out of out of the port and the gate, the horse out of the gate, whatever analogy you want to use. I mean, was it just a too late to turn this around? We were 
when I took over the whole of the campaign in July, I was put in charge of everything except the VP betting and search. And Rick Davis was in charge of that. And we have this meeting in, in uh, Aspen. And we rent out this condo for the day. And, um, you know, I have a bunch of private meetings with Cindy McCain. I have um, some private time with John, but we have this big vice presidential meeting. And um, I'm sitting there listening to this meeting. And I was like, I, this, is, this is a cluster f- that's beyond description. I, I, at the end of that meeting, what I said was, I think there are more chances than not, right, that we're, we're going to wind up in a, in a situation where the convention picks the vice presidential candidate. It was, a, it was a list of names, right? The real options in Sedona were Romney and Pileni. Um, They didn't accomplish politically what needed to be accomplished. Um, though I think Romney, you know, obviously was was prepared and qualified to be, you know, to be president on day one. Um, but but we went for a walk down by the river and, you know, John McCain in that moment, you know, I, I said to him uh, that I didn't think that he was going to win and that he needed to take a risk. He needed to take a gamble. Um Mark Salter was the wise person there. He said there are more important things than losing an election, including your reputation. And Cindy McCain said it would be a gamble. And he looked at her and he said, um, oh, I wish you didn't say that. You know how much I like to gamble. And he did. Right? He loved he loved playing craps and he pretended he had craps dice in his hand. He shook them and he uh, pretended to throw the dice. And he said, it, let's do it. Hmm. And uh and he picked Sarah Palin to, to be to be the vice president. And then, you know, like as I've explained on this, you know, I, I, I and I do think I do deeply believe this. Right. It's, you know, whether it's Lord of the Flies, whether it's, uh, you know, the Trump campaign, whether it's the McCain campaign, um, they're all the same. And there's three types of people in the world, right? You know, there's the, the first type goes and looks at that crazy pool and jumps in and swims with them, right? Second type of person, right, which is, which is, which is by far the smartest type, is looks at all that and walks, walks away. Um, and uh, third type of person is my type. And that type of person walks into this and 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 says, "What the fuck is happening here? Stop it!" And 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 that's and that's really what the story of of that fall campaign was, you know, between she, you know, between me and her. Um, it's remarkable. I mean, you talk about Palin and her husband potentially being part of a seditionist, you know, group. I, I've always thought of Palin as. You know, there's I think you'd you'd agree, Steve. There's a difference between being educated and being smart. You can be educated and, and not the latter, sure. and certainly you can be the latter and not the former. I, I always I've always felt that Palin, you know, while you you talk about her, just the the vast amount of things she doesn't know could have filled one of Romney's binders. Uh, but but sure. But she's not. You know, she's also not stupid. I mean, she doesn't seem like you know she she has this. And she has this sort of intelligence about her um, that 
it's not so easy to to kind of brush aside. She, but that's not the same with like Green and Cawthorn and you know that she sort of ushered in this this whole movement. And as much as McCain's legacy was service, he also is. And look, I have you know, there's criticism I can levy against Obama too, but there's. He certainly, by pushing pushing her forward, he kind of. I mean, do you think that he kind of pushed what we see today? This, you know, the sort of Tea Party morphosis of of whatever we're going to call the, you know, the Gates and the Greens and the you know those cast of characters. Is there connective tissue between the two? I I have a hard time in this space because, yes, of course, there's connective tissue, right? But. There's connective tissue back to the John Birchers and Jim Crow and George Wallace and a whole cast of other know-nothings, right, that preceded this in the early years, right? Herman Cain, Michelle Bachman, right? The whole rise of, of total nuttiness, right? What, what happened was, I think more than anything, was, was this, and I and I reject right the politics of kind of expulcation because it immunizes and infantizes the broader responsibilities by saying this one thing caused everything else, right? That's a fairy tale. What what happened, what happens on January 20th of 2009 is is the first black president takes the oath of office. And you have a uh, you have Democratic majorities. Republicans are out of power, um, and the power. And as as has been pointed out many times, right? You know, nature abhors a vacuum, so the power vacuum was filled, but not by elected officials, and not by party officials, but by media personalities. And so, in two thousand and nine. The media tail, Fox, becomes the head. That's what happens in 2009. And so you have a movement that comes to life in the conservative media, conservative magazines, conservative blogs. That's essentially a pale and truther movement, which is that, in fact, she is not ignorant. She is not a clown. She was betrayed. Uh, she was betrayed by who? She's betrayed by the establishment. Who's the establishment? The establishment in this instance was me, right? The evil political advisor, right, who betrays this American eagle who, if she just could have flown unencumbered and free, would have lighted the world with all of the good and noble things. And so Sarah Palin who in any other moment, just by the performance, which was a loser's performance, a failure's performance, she failed, right? If you go back to the movie Patton, right, which all these, you know, kind of incel groups inside a CPAC like watching, and George Patton at the beginning is up in front of the American flag, talks about Americans hate a loser. She failed. She was incompetent, right? But what she ignited and transitioned to, from, in this moment, is the conservative movement, the Republican Party, in an instant, 
goes from the personal responsibility party to the great American political grievance and victim party. And Sarah Palin's victimization is awarded, rewarded with a million dollar contract on Fox News, where she goes and sits down with the Chris Wallace's of the world on Sunday and other serious news journalists and not one time ever. Does anybody ever ask Sarah Palin a serious question aimed at determining her fitness, her qualifications, so on and so forth? In the end, right, what's rising in this moment, right, isn't isn't just iPhones, right, just isn't, right, the early days of social media. It's the early days of reality shows, right? And so all of this is cooking in the pot. Right. Um, you know, I love Michael Franti. Right. What you got cooking in the pot. Right. What you have cooking in the pot. Right. Is all of this stew together. And so she opts for fame. She opts to quit. Reality shows are rising. The stars are being born in this cultural stew of complete and total idiocy comes to a boil on a let's call it you know uh six seven year six seven year basis in in 2012 um you know sarah palin is is flirting with running for presidency and there was a lot less holy coverage than there was speculative this is going to be ratings and clicks and everything else and at the end of the day Right, Sarah Palin turned out to be a pretty boring local rate rodeo, right? And the, the the old Calgary stampede, so to speak, right? That was Trump, right? Who took this whole thing to the next level because he's smarter and where she does have some native cunning, right? He has a real legitimate malice, uh, a real legitimate chip on his shoulder a real understanding and mastery of American media, all of its hypocrisies, how to ride the cesspool wave. And Donald Trump, right, becomes the avatar of this movement. And ultimately, Donald Trump finds a way to an ideology. And that ideology quickly metastasizes from some type of stupid populism to a real lethal type of populism where replacement theory, which is foundational, as we said at the beginning, to things like Hitlerism, is espoused on Fox News unrelentingly in the 8 o'clock, in the 9 o'clock, in the Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram hours, in a way that will trigger mentally ill, sick, disaffected loners. And here's the thing, right? How do we cover this guy? If he's an 18-year-old jihadi named Muhammad, as opposed to an 18-year-old Nazi named whatever. And what I would put forward is we cover them differently in this country, and we ought not to. The jihadis are a threat, but on our list of threats, they're very low. We have a real threat in this country, and the threat is a rising tide of political extremism and fascism with violence attached to it. This was a political act. This was an act of war in Buffalo. This had intent. It had purpose. 
It had an ideology, and that ideology that is being all of a sudden, it wasn't me, though Elise Stefanik embraces it and puts it in her campaign ads, and Tucker Carlson spews it, and there's a Vanity Fair piece by James Pogue that explains it, that's available to be reading. And though the arguments they're making are the same arguments that Mussolini makes when he defines fascism in a speech in 1932, or Adolf Hitler makes when he gives a speech to German industrialists in that same year, all of this has been laid out is in the historical record, and we should look at the points of overlap and overlay the way that the New York Times so brilliantly laid it out graphically in a story that documents how organized Tucker Carlson's rhetoric is. This is the last thing I'll say about this, which is this. The national media doesn't pick up and doesn't pay attention to and doesn't understand, therefore, the meaning of the word regime that Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram use every night. The regime, as they use it, is the people's government. And that's how it's understood in the new right in the fascist movement, that Elise Stefanik, that J.D. Vance, that Steve Bannon and others are part of. What Steve Bannon is doing is training workers to storm the regime and to take it down in six months' time from its ability to function, regulate, and do the work of the American people. And out of that chaos, to accumulate executive power in what J.D. Vance has been open and on the record talking about, which is a desire for the rise of an American Caesar who can stop the great threat to freedom, which is democracy. Because you see, Naveed, in democracy, you and I will stand equally. We will each have a vote. That 75% of the country today stands ready to accept the foundational premise of the country as a moral proposition that freedom means freedom for everybody. And that when we say all men, we mean all men and women and everybody is created equally, regardless of color, creed, religion, gender, right? That they're entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness without intrusion from government. That's where we stand, right? That's what this is right now. This is what the line is, right? That's the fighting line. And so that's what we're seeing play out. Okay. I, I, of course, I I agree with a lot of this premise. And, you know, it's, it's also transactional. And when we think about transactional, we think about, you know, dark money and super PACs and the like that, you know, their introduction, the idea that you can essentially buy and sell candidates. And then, as you said, you know, you have access to them once they're no longer a candidate, but an official. This is an ongoing problem, you know, but it also has spurned one of the things that you were associated with the Lincoln Project, which, 
you know, had an incredible impact on the last elections. And the Lincoln Project is, of course, you know, it, it also it also um, was the subject of various stories and attacks. And, you know, I just want to ask one thing out of the gate, because I saw your 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 tweet and read your Substack, and I said I was very public about it. So I found it to be incredibly interesting because when I think about this objectively as a journalist or as a former, you know, intelligence person, and I look about look at the claims against John Weaver. John Weaver is one of the former, I believe, founders, and um, you know, there's this implication, and it is an implication that somehow he was engaged in behavior that was. Uh, the sexual harassment in, of nature of, of that kind. And yet when I read the various New York Times and AP reporting, and again, his behavior may have been inappropriate and it was perhaps appropriate that he left. I, I am sort of at this loss of seeing where the core element of those stories, the sexual harassment occurred, if there was any evidence or any independent verification that such behavior happened. And the only reason that's important Steve is because when I was, you know, earlier today, I was talking to a high school class about reporting and, you know, the idea that objectivity has to be paramount, that you have to take your um, personal views out of this. But there's this part about what came in with Trump also, I think, was access journalism. And I'm wondering when it comes to Weaver, you know, if these stories, the subsequent derivative stories that came out after the main story about him engaging in sexual harassment, if that sexual harassment was not didn't happen, then what can one take about the derivative stories? So I'm going to answer that question, but in order to do so efficiently, I want to make a point that I think is incredible. Um, and it's this: I put out a statement, and I put it up on my Substack where I talked about um, the McCain campaign and I talked about this New York Times story. And in that letter, I made something very clear, which is that John McCain lied to me also more than 20 times is what I've said, at least, and told me about that lie after all of this went down. Jeremy Peters, a New York Times political journalist, who I've always thought as of as an excellent journalist, wrote the story. The story says that what I said is that I lied right about John McCain's affair. And that's not what I said. It's not what I said at a ninth grade reading comprehension level. It is not what I said. If you gave what I wrote and you read it and you read what they wrote in reporting it and which they refuse to correct or fix, you can see a type of arrogance in in the Dean Baquette era that is on the exact same level of the U.S. Conference of Bishops at the height of the sexual abuse scandals. 
an entitlement, a high-handedness, an arrogance that in the end destroys the integrity of institutions. So I would encourage anyone to look at those two stories to see my point. Now, let me come back to the Lincoln Project itself and John Weaver. In the New York Times stories, in the New York MAG stories, and in the AP story is an assertion that 10 specific allegations were made against John Weaver, right, of sexual harassment that were notified and were ignored, the inference being so everybody could make money. This is not true at all. There were zero specific allegations. There was a single letter written by a man called Connor Rogers, who worked for Ron Steslow at Tusk Digital, who was the largest vendor to the Lincoln Project, paid $21 million in gross receipts, not net profit, but he was the highest paid vendor of the Lincoln Project. And on the very same day, he was secretly appointed to the board of a Lincoln Project, which isn't a nefarious thing. It's just a startup story, right, of something that should never have happened but did, right, because of how fast everything's going. This guy sends this letter. Now, if you say there have been 16 specific allegations, right, against Trump, right, or 57 or whatever the grotesque number is, you can name the people. Like, for example, there is E. Jean Carroll, right, Um, or, right, against Andrew Cuomo. There are no people that came forward that made a complaint against John Weaver to the Lincoln Project. So the first stories that came out were emails between John Weaver and men that existed and took place, one, before the Lincoln Project existed, sometimes by years. The most damaging allegation about Weaver in the New York Times, which was that he was in text communications with a 14-year-old in 2015 and then had a sexualized communication with him in March after the Lincoln Project started, assigns blame to something he did when he worked for John Kasich years before the organization existed to the Lincoln Project, and they did it for clicks. That has led to a year and a half smear campaign of us being called pedophiles, including an errancy and reporting in the Associated Press that I use Lincoln Project money. Um, to buy a home that I moved into in 2018 and entered into an agreement on a lease purchase agreement after I got divorced, right? That one, I shouldn't have to disclose, but my disclosure of it completely obliterates the premise of the story, yet those stories are uncorrected. And so the American media is vicious. It is irresponsible. The ethical lapses are not universal, but they are systemic and it's all in the open and people see it. And 
It has collapsed trust between the American people and the sources that are supposed to be trusted to tell them what's up, what's down, what's yes, what's no, and to orient them to reality. And we have an enormous cultural and societal crisis of it. So the story of the Lincoln Project is a story of fame seeking. It's a story of greed. Um, It's a story of politics. It's a story that shows some of the people involved in the Lincoln Project were every bit the peers of the Trump people in scumbaggery. It shows a remarkable achievement and the lessons of a startup. Right. But it also opens an insight and a window into the American media that's really ugly. And my attorneys at Glazer White, um, at Glazer Weil, uh, will be dealing with these issues now um, at a general counsel level in these organizations. And I don't have any doubt whatsoever um, that you're going to see some substantial changes to all these stories. Okay. So, you know, I go back to this, this basic question, Steve, which is, Again, if look in journalism, if you have if here at Newsweek, if we run a story, if we break a story and we say, you know, X occurred, then other outlets can say X occurred as reported by Newsweek. So it's this there is this derivative work. And I understand, you know, at the core of it, if the if the core reporting is wrong and look, we have we have agencies, federal agencies that always you know, get in t- touch with us and, and argue about things. And, and, you know, in some cases we, we are wrong and we make a correction, but this core report. So I want, cause I think this is really important. I understand the whole thing. If the, if the derivative works, they can argue are based on one, one or two or three places, core reporting. And that's what they're looking at. But this core reporting, you know, again, that, that, uh, that Weaver had, uh, there was al- credible allegations of sexual harassment. You know, what you're saying is that no, no victims came forward. No one, you know, lodged a complaint with the Lincoln Project. I just a very basic question: Why? Why did Connor like? Why did he? Why did he deliver this letter? What was the point of the letter to begin with? If there was no credible claims of harassment, like what? What was his motivation? Do you think there's a lot of bad blood? Here's what's happening at the time. So. Ron Stesso is 32, 33. He's the digital vendor. Um, One of the things that he asked to do on the Lincoln Project, and this was very much the culture, and you'll see this, right? Because this is all beyond a documentary, right? This was all filmed, right? This is Fisher Stevens documentary, Guy Did Tiger King, right? This is this will all be rendered, right? It'll be out, I think, sometime, sometime this summer. So, so Reed Galen is, is running this and, um, you know, and somebody, you know, and Reed would say, we got to have a podcast, right? We have, um, you know, we got, we got X million of people following this, the whole, we got to do a podcast. Um, and, and everyone would look away, right. As Reed's trying to like say, right. Basically to one of us, like we have to do a podcast, right. And um, Ron Stessa is like, like, I'd like to do that. And the culture of the thing was, okay, like it would come up to me and I'd be like, well, do you think it'll suck at it? And people were like, nah, he might be good. And I was like, well, give him a shot, right? If he's terrible, obviously get someone better, but um, give him a shot. So, so he got to, so he got to do stuff like that. Um, now, he was also making a lot of money. Previously, his work in politics was for the Evan McMullen campaign, right? And, 
And so now he's doing this and there's a contract that's signed and that contract was a crazy contract. And John Weaver looked at that contract and, and John Weaver was like, um, no way. And I, and, and, and the Weaver position was, I don't give a f- what the contract says. There's no way he's making this much money on this thing. It's outrageously inappropriate. Weaver was completely right. And so this contract negotiation is, is, is going on. And actually, I had my first conversation ever one-on-one with this guy at the time. Now, on the day right, that this letter goes in right, to the Lincoln Project is the very same day that Ron Steslow becomes a member of the board of the Lincoln Project, right? And so he's basically sending a letter to himself, right, from an employee that he goes on to do nothing about, right? He does later, after the election, use his power as a board member to give himself money to sue the organization and ultimately to make a demand for another million dollars on top of what he had made as the you know cost center of what's any modern political organization today, which is which is which is the data piece. And so 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 what this so what the yeah so what this letter says, what I was saying, what this letter says, right, is basically person one. I know a guy who knows a guy who met someone uh, at the University of Texas who was trying to get a job. And they met Weaver for coffee and Weaver hit on. Number two, I know someone who dated someone who did whatever with Weaver. And then there are two allegations about people who work for the Lincoln Project. The letter goes in. The general counsel looks at it. He says there's no evidence. There's no allegations. It's all anonymous stuff. That letter was twisted and turned into a specific allegation. Right, 10x by extremely dishonest reporting in the New York Times, New York Mag, and AP, and other places because they allowed the authors of the letter to be the sources for the story as they selectively read it. I mean, I have continued to call on the Lincoln Project to release this letter. They should release this letter. Because the letter will show what nonsense all of this was. This should have been released in the Hastings Law Firm investigation. It should have been the first thing the crisis law uh, firm did that counseled the Lincoln Project before this. But, but this is all nonsense. Now, that's different than saying, and I, and I have to be clear about this because people are stupid, right? It's different than saying there's not legitimacy Right. With with regard to the 21 adult men who feel that John Weaver harassed them. Right. That, but that has nothing to do with me and nothing to do with the Lincoln Project whatsoever. Boy, I, <laughs> that, Steve, I mean, I could listen to you talk for hours about this stuff. It is both fascinating, um, disturbing. And, you know, when I think about what you just described about the Lincoln Project, I'm also struck with, you know, not only uh, as an outsider watching this, the importance it had in terms of the election and Trump and Biden. Um, and yet here we are learning all this other stuff that was going on behind the scenes. And I got to say, I look forward to 
watching the documentary. Steve, I really appreciate um, you taking this extended period to sort of talk to us and um, yeah, just a fascinating conversation uh, to learn about this. It just, I don't know. I feel like all politics are dirty, I guess, and that shouldn't be a surprise, but to hear it, <laughs> to hear it, you know, to hear it from as an outsider, to see this peek behind the veil, it really is, I don't know, it, enlightening perhaps. I mean, it seems like this is just the way things are handled. And um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if there is, are there any politicians out there that do put service amongst uh, ahead of there is right there they're they're everywhere right you know we got it the good you know tim ryan sure uh mcmorrow abigail spanberger liz cheney right you know the the we gotta be we gotta understand again right like and i let this be my last word please on it, right but like this is like a core thing to have the country Right. We need our progressives in America because they have vision for a better future. Right. It's how kids got out of coal mines and into classrooms. Right. They imagined, right, a better society. Right. The country needs its conservatives. Right. Like to preserve the best institutions. Right. And the connection. Right. That 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 binds us right to the sacrifices of our ancestors. I mean, we could go to Pompeii. And, and, and I could look at, right, a building and be like, you know what that building is? That's the building where the guy worked, right, who was in charge of the money, right? Every journalistic enterprise, every family, every business, every society has that person. Has that person, right, to constrain, right, personal finances, family finances, the public treasury. Right. If you look at a problem and a progressive says, wow, that we should fix that problem. And you're like, how much? And they're like, nine hundred. You're like, I'm like, nine hundred. Right. Maybe a moderate Democrat's like seven. Right. Maybe uh, maybe maybe a moderate Republican's like six and, and a Scrooge Republican. Right. Of the old school. Right. With the Calvin Coolidge poster on their wall is like three hundred. You're like three hundred point at both sides and say you're both nuts let's call it 650 and move on to the next problem right, right. but the person who's for 350 and the person who's for 900 should want to kill each other right you know we'll have to leave it there i i agree with you i mean i believe in a two-party system and look the way in my simplistic ham-fisted way of looking at things you know batman needs joker if there's no joker then batman's just a dude in a mask acting as a vigilante we need those two parties so <laughs> you know that's the way i look at it they play off each other steve i really appreciate the time thanks so much for coming on you bet great to be with you thank you thanks once again to steve schmidt for joining us you can find steve's latest thoughts on twitter at steve schmidt ses and on his Substack account the warning If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really does help us both grow and bring you this original content. As always, until next time, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek.